listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Dear Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for this time. We thank you for that worship time, Lord God. And we pray now that as we turn our hearts and our minds towards you, Lord, that you would speak to us through your wonderful word. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, the message today is called Wisdom and Folly. We are looking at the book of Proverbs this morning. Okay, for those of you who know Proverbs, it's a very down-to-earth, a very practical book. And it's, it's really one that should be part of our regular devotions because it gives such practical guidance. Plus, there are 31 chapters, so it's a chapter a day. It works very well for most months of the year. However, as I found myself looking into it and preparing for it, it's actually quite a hard book to preach. Uh, namely, in, in one reason, because literally within one line, it can change topic. Uh, topic change, topic change, topic change, topic change. So it's, not, it's quite hard to find a theme in that area but also because it's just very challenging, okay? When you stand up here and you preach, one thing you, you don't want to do is kind of preach hypocritically. But when you go through Proverbs, you very quickly realize that um, well, you, you quite often end up in the path of, of what we're going to call folly. Um, so I just say that this morning. If we hit these things, I, I'm not up here preaching at you. I, I'd like to see it that we're all just up here this morning uh, just putting ourselves under the Word of God. Okay, and we're just going to see what Proverbs has to say to us. So you can turn with your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. There will be quite a lot of reading in the, in the Proverbs this morning. The book of Proverbs addresses many issues that we all confront in life. Things like anger, character development, business ethics, parenting, conflict resolution, courage, education, education sorry, friendships, goals, gossip, government, Justice, work, love, money, peer pressure, sex, relationships, sin, temptation, and truth, to name just a few of them. Could treble that list. So these are all things that we encounter in our daily lives, and they're all things that we need God's wisdom on. Okay, so this wisdom is for all of us. We see it on a personal level, but we also see it playing out on a national level. Obviously, nations are made up of individuals. Okay, so we're going to see how this plays out in both ways. As an introduction to this, I'm going to kind of come at this in quite a, a roundabout way. I want to read you a speech by a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Now, he was a Russian novelist, a uh, Soviet critic. Uh, he was imprisoned in the gulags by the communists. He was interrogated and eventually he was expelled from Russia. Uh, he was a believer in Christ. He wrote a lot <laughs> about this subject. And in 1978, he gave the Harvard University, you know, Ivy League, he gave their commencement speech and he called it a world split apart, okay? And it was obviously about the divide between the East and the West. But it, it's one of the most insightful political speeches that you'll probably ever read. It was given in 1978, but it's even more relevant today than it is now. He, he identified issues and hit them, just you know, hit the nail right on the head, so to speak. I'm going to really just put a few highlights of this speech together. I recommend that you read the whole speech, so bear with me. I'm going to read a little bit here, but this is just a, a highlight of the speech. It's a world split apart, Harvard University. He says, Harvard's motto is veritas, that means truth. He says, many of you have already found out and others will find out in the course of their lives that truth eludes us as soon as our concentration begins to flag all the while leaving the illusion that we are continuing to pursue it. When the modern Western states were being formed, it was proclaimed as a principle that governments are meant to serve man and that man lives in order to be free and pursue happiness. 
Now at last, during past decades, technical and social progress has permitted the realisation of such aspirations, the welfare state. Every citizen has been granted the desired freedom and material goods in such quantity and in such quality as to guarantee, in theory, the achievement of happiness in the debased sense of the word which has come into being during these same decades. In the process, however, one psychological detail has been overlooked. The constant desire to have still more things and a still better life and the struggle to this end imprints many Western faces with worry and even depression, though it is customary to carefully conceal such feelings. This active and tense competition comes to dominate all human thought and does not in the least open a way to free spiritual development. Yet strangely enough, though the best social conditions have been achieved in the West, there still remains a great deal of crime. There even is considerably more than in the destitute and lawless Soviet society. The press too, of course, enjoys the widest freedom. And because instant and credible information is required, it becomes necessary to resort to guesswork, rumours and suppositions to fill the voids. And none of them will ever be refuted. They settle into their reader's memory. How many hasty, immature, superficial and misleading judgments are expressed every day, confusing readers and left hanging. There are telltale symptoms by which history gives warning to a threatened or perishing society. And such are, for instance, a decline of the arts or a lack of great statesmen. But the fight for our planet, physical and spiritual, a fight of cosmic proportions, is not a vague matter of the future. It has already started. The forces of evil have begun their decisive offensive. You can feel their pressure, yet your screens and publications are full of prescribed smiles and raised glasses. What is all the joy about? How did the West decline from its triumphal march to its present debility? I refer to the prevailing Western view of the world. Listen to what he says. Which was born in the Renaissance and has found political expression since the Enlightenment. It became the basis for political and social doctrine and it could be called rationalistic humanism or humanistic autonomy. The proclaimed and practiced autonomy of man from any higher force above him. The humanistic way of thinking, which had proclaimed itself our guide, did not admit the existence of intrinsic evil in man, nor did it see any higher task than the attained happiness on earth. It started modern Western civilization on the dangerous trend of worshipping man and his material needs. Everything beyond physical well-being and the accumulation of goods, all other human require requirements were left outside of the area of attention of state and social systems, as if human life did not have any higher meaning. A total emancipation occurred from the moral heritage of Christian centuries with their great reserves of mercy and sacrifice. State systems were becoming more materialistic. The West has finally achieved the rights of man and even excess, but man's sense of respons responsibility to God and society has grown dimmer and dimmer. And yet there is a disaster which is already with us, and I'm referring to the calamity of an autonomous, irreligious, humanistic consciousness. It has made man the measure of all things on earth, imperfect man, who is never free of pride, self-interest, envy, vanity, and dozens of other defects. On the way from the Renaissance to our days, we've enriched our experience, but we have lost the concept of a supreme, complete entity which is used to restrain our passions and irresponsibility. We have placed too much hope in politics and social reforms, only to find out that we were being deprived of our most precious possession, our spiritual life. We cannot avoid reassessing the fundamental definitions of human life. Is it true that man is above everything? Is there no superior spirit above him? Is it right that man's life and societies 
activities should be ruled by material expansion. Is it permissible, per permissible sorry, to promote such expansion to the detriment of our integral spiritual life? If the world has not approached its end, it has reached a major watershed in history, and it will demand from us a spiritual blaze. We have to rise to a new height of vision, to a new level of life where our physical nature will not be cursed as in the Middle Ages. But more importantly, our spiritual being will not be trampled upon as in the modern era. The ascension is similar to climbing onto the next anthropological stage. No one on earth has any other way left but upward. Now, how do you think this speech was received at Harvard University? <clears throat> He was booed and booed and booed by these Westerners who would not listen to his advice, even though he knew what he was talking about. Read the whole speech if you want to get more of that. And this was in 1978. You see, today, I'd very much doubt he'd be allowed to take the pulpit because they'd protest him. His message would be too conservative. And, you know, God forbid that these students were exposed to something like that. They'd need to be placed in their safe spaces and their colouring books and sweets would need to be brought to them. Such is the fragile state. I'm not joking, that actually happens. <laughs> um, such, such is the fragile state of <laughs> colleges today. There's a theologian called Bob Deffenbar. He, he works at Dallas Seminary. And in his commentary to Proverbs, he begins with parts of this speech. And he sums up this speech in one way. He says this, I believe the substance of his message could be summarized by this statement. Listen, the West is slowly destroying itself by its neglect of godly wisdom and Christian character. So he sums up the book, this speech here. And obviously the book of Proverbs is concerned with giving us godly wisdom and Christian character. This is what the book of Proverbs does. We need to desire wisdom. You remember, we see it in the, book, in the New, New Testament, the book of James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 3. <clears throat> James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. James, brother of our Lord, he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual and demonic. But where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay? Now, we often miss things like this because of our unfamiliarity with the Old Testament. But what James has done there is in five verses, he has basically summed up the entire book of Proverbs. That is what Proverbs is concerned with, giving us this wisdom and keeping us away from worldly wisdom, drawing on his Old Testament background there. He would have, Proverbs is a very popular book in Jewish tradition. Okay? They would have, would have known this very, very well. Now, we do see someone in the Bible asking for wisdom. Who do we see in the Bible that's famous for asking for wisdom? Solomon. Let's read that. Second Chronicles 1, verse 7 to 11. It says, In that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled, for you have made me a king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge 
to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours which is so great? And God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honour, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but you have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. And with this wisdom and knowledge, we see King Solomon give us the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Song, Song of Solomons, collectively referred to as wisdom literature. Okay, This was the wisdom that Solomon asked from God. This is what we had. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not kind of top of the list of too many people's reading material. It's very good to read it back to back with Proverbs. Read Ecclesiastes and then read Proverbs. The end of the book of Ecclesiastes, it's basically about Solomon describing very graphically his kind of weary search for happiness as he strayed from the way of wisdom into the path of folly many, many times in his life. And he points people at the end of this book to read the book of Proverbs so that they can learn from his mistakes without experiencing his mistakes, that they can learn from the word of God. So if, let's read the last seven verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. They serve as a very fitting introduction to the book of Proverbs. I know this is a long introduction, but this, there's a lot. Last seven verses, so it's Ecclesiastes 12, verses 8 to 14. He says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. We obviously are treated to many of these proverbs in the book of Proverbs. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment every secret thing, whether good or evil. And with this, let's turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. We're going to jump around quite a bit in Proverbs, but the first six verses we'll read and deal with, as again, they really give us the purpose of the book of Proverbs. And it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behaviour, righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the naive and to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. So we have a number of words here, wisdom, instruction, discernment, that you'll see used again and again and again throughout the book of Proverbs. They're all different, subtly, yet they're all related. So I'm going to give you a, just a few, going to expand on them a little bit. Verse 2, we have wisdom. This is a word that comes from meaning skillfulness. And this is referring to the actual ability to use knowledge rightly. Okay, We, have, we accumulate knowledge, but that doesn't really mean much. You can, Unless you know how to apply that knowledge and use it to walk the way of wisdom then it says you're a fool, basically. Instruction. This is from a word that means to teach by discipline. Okay, We discipline ourselves. We teach ourselves. The, the, there is discipline, and it's translated chastening in some places in the Bible, this word, that God would do. Discern. 
this is this is kind of has the idea of weighing between different options and deciding the right course. Receiving instruction in wise behaviour. This is really referring to knowledge through practice. Experiential knowledge is wise behaviour. As you go out and you experience these things, you know where to go. Righteousness. In this sense, it's referring to conduct. Right behaviour, okay, as opposed to wrong behaviour. Justice. This is really, again, looking at decisions and testing things that differ and knowing which is the just way to choose. Equity. This is referring to principles rather than conduct. Your moral integrity. Prudence. Uh, This is the same word that's often translated in the negative sense, craftiness. And we don't often think about that, but in the New Testament, the equivalent would be where where, where we're told to be wise as serpents. Okay, that's that's the idea here, that we we understand these, these issues. Knowledge. That's information of a sound character in this sense. And then discretion. Discretion in this, the word here really means to be able to make a plan once you've understood the options. Okay, so you, you take things in, you weigh them, and then you can make a wise course of action based on those decisions. All of these things are something that characterize someone who is walking in the way of wisdom. Okay, Proverbs is concerned with teaching us these qualities giving us these qualities and showing us how to live in such a way. However, there is a catch. You see, simply reading this book will not be sufficient. You won't just read this book and understand it in that sense. And the catch, you need a key that will unlock it all for you in your life. I'm talking practically at this sense. Proverbs is a very practical book. And that key is found for us in verse 7. Read it with me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You'll see this phrase eight, nine, ten times in the book of Proverbs. You'll see it in the book of You'll find it all throughout the Bible in the New Testament too. I'm going uh, to give you an idea of what it means. Let me read a few of the times it, it comes up in Proverbs. Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. We hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. That's the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 14, 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. So some of the the ideas of everything that's involved in this phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's not so much just talking about fear of punishment, like we might think of the word. However, I'm not willing to say that that's not involved. You know, there is that element to it. It can be used in that way. There is a, you know... There is a judgment coming. That's a very real part of the Christian message. But often you'll see the same word used to really speak of what we would say awe or or reverence for the Lord. And in this sense, it includes the idea of wonder, amazement, mystery, astonishment, gratitude, admiration, and even in some context, worship. This is what it means to fear the Lord. So fear of the Lord then includes an overwhelming sense of the glory, the majesty, the worth, and the beauty of the one true God of Israel. This is the fear of the war of the Lord. And it's given to us here as the first principle for all sound reasoning of the universe and everything it contains. And if you think about it, it's true. Every question we come at in our lives, it's different if you believe in God. 
where we came from, who we are, what we do with our life. Everything changes if you have that understanding and that belief in God and that fear of God, which means you understand who he is. You see, without it, even the most sophisticated human reasoning is nothing more, and this is a Hebrew expression, they would say, who's heard the expression where someone's talking and you might think they're a bit of a know-it-all and they go, yada, yada, yada. That's what you do. That's the Hebrew word to know, yada. That's what they say. With all, with all human reasoning, without the fear of the Lord, it's nothing but the yada, yada of a fool. That's, that's, what, that's what they say. And quite frankly, it's true. Because if the, if the word of God, if, if the understanding that God is the ultimate reality, your reality is very different. This is the message of the book of Proverbs. Now, we live in a day where time for cultivation of the fear of the Lord is rare. Okay, it's rare and it's hard. The small amount of time we have, it's hard to cultivate a proper fear of the Lord. We have to admit this even in our own lives. We see little fear of the Lord today in the culture. The name of Christ is profaned daily in pretty much every media format that we could imagine. However, we also see, see little fear of the Lord in the church in some instances. We see, unfortunately, we have to admit that. That is the case. A recent example, millions upon millions of Christians going to see this movie called The Shack, based on the best-selling book, you might remember it, a few years back. This book that presents just such a distorted image of God that is not the God of the Bible. Yet we flock to it, yet try and fill a conference of people studying the book of Proverbs, you might be lucky to get a few hundred people at that. The fear of the Lord. It's easy to search after a different God. Now, if we're also very honest with ourselves, we often see a lack of the fear of the Lord in our own lives, don't we? Not for any, maybe any fault of our own. For me, it's a time issue. Sometimes it's hard just to have that time. However, the problem I see in the church is that often, rather than try and elevate our own understanding and our vision of God through meditation, through spiritual discipline, by looking at how he has revealed himself to us and looking at the things he loves, the things he hates, and the work that he has done, Often it's much easier to try and lower God down to a level, maybe good intentions behind it, I understand, so that we can understand him more. But yet, that's not the God. That's not God. God is who he is. He has revealed himself as who he is. And often, unfortunately, I see this being done to try and make God more palatable to a rebellious culture, make him less offensive, make him not really care about certain sins because they don't offend his moral nature. And we change God. You see, the moment you do that, as a Christian, you may be doing it because you're having a conversation and you don't want to put someone off at this stage. The moment you do that, the fear of God is gone. And with the fear of God goes the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And it's wisdom and knowledge that leads to life, which is the ultimate destination that we're trying to get people to. So you have to have this as a unified package, the fear of the Lord. You see, we see it so often. Uh, that little expression, you always, you know, the big man upstairs, Jesus is my homeboy, or you see these things all over Facebook. Whenever you hear someone speaking about Jesus or speaking about God, you always need to clarify. You know, I always kind of feel like I just want to ask them, you know, who are you talking about? Okay, because when we say the word, we're talking about the eternal, immortal, holy, and righteous God. We're talking about the Lord of hosts, the one who is so far above anyone else or any other thing that nothing can compare to him. He's the one who's enthroned on, in heaven, surrounded by multitudes of heavenly hosts who cry out to him day and night, holy, holy, holy are you. Every breath that we take is given by virtue of his sovereign grace. He's the one who created all things by the word of his power and he upholds all things in this universe. He's the one that one day 
We will see him coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, riding on a white horse with the armies and multitudes of heavenly hosts behind him. He is the one that on his thigh he'll have written a new name, King of kings and Lord of lords. He will come to trample the winepress of the wrath of God. All authority has been given to him to judge the living and the dead, and it is before him that everyone will one day stand and give an account of their deeds, whether good or bad. He's the one who will cast Satan into the bottomless pit. He will transfer the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God and he will sit upon his throne ruling and reigning for all eternity is this who you mean yet in spite of all this he is the one who will step who stepped down from his rightful place from the glories of heaven he entered into this creation as a helpless infant he lived his life in a poor family working by the sweat of his brow in some backwater province of a totalitarian Roman empire He was falsely accused, he was persecuted, he was beaten, scorned by those he loved. He allowed mankind to spit in the face of the Creator. And as his back was scourged and the thorns pierced his brow, he allowed himself to suffer the humiliating death of a Roman cross. And as he hung there naked, abused, beaten and bloody, rejected of men, despised, forsaken of God, the sins of the world were placed upon his shoulders. And even with his last breath, he uttered words of forgiveness to those he loved. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Yet it was him who had the victory on this day. He has now been vindicated. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. He is exalted to the highest place, having disarmed all principalities and powers, and he is now given the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee <clears throat> will bow those who are on earth and under the earth. Is this who you mean? Because if that's who you mean, we'd say amen. Anything short of that, that's not who we're talking about. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and knowledge. That's what it means to have fear of the Lord. We search out the character of Christ. It's our lifelong pursuit. It's a relentless pursuit that we will continue from this day until the day that we meet him and we see him like he is. That's what it means. It's something that we never, if the day we say we've arrived, I've got the fear of the Lord, it's probably the day that we take a path change from the way of wisdom to the way of folly, because the Lord is inexhaustible. There's always more to discover, just in the Bible. Let's talk about fools for a little bit. There are a number of different words used in Proverbs that are translated fool. Okay, We miss this in the English, but because of this, the Jewish people came up with a tradition where they have five different types of fools. And these are very instructive for us to, to, to look at. The first one was called the simple one. And this is an immature person who is easily seduced and unaware that sinful consequences have, sinful actions have consequences. The second type of fool was called the dullard. This is a stubborn and opinion, opinionated person who is slow to realize that sin has consequences. The third, they call this the fool proper, insolently mocks at sin and doesn't care that sin has consequences. Fourth was the boar. This is a shameless and profane person who lives like a practical atheist. And then fifth was the scorner. This is someone who cynically and bitterly mocks everything to do with God. We probably all know people who fit into all of these categories. Proverbs tells us that the final destination of these fools Unless they change, repent, and turn to the path of wisdom, which means becoming a Christian, is destruction. Now, in Proverbs chapters 1 to chapter 9, we see two ways set before us, the path of wisdom and the path of folly. And the way this is done in Proverbs is poetical literature, okay? And 
you get a beautiful metaphor in these first nine chapters where wisdom is personified as a woman, okay? And folly is also personified as a woman, okay? So you have these two characters, these two women, that basically go back and forth with each other, okay? They call them Madame Wisdom and Dame Folly, a lot of, that's kind of just how they've been classified in commentaries. Wisdom will give advice. Folly will try and seduce someone from that advice. Wisdom will come back with more advice. And it goes back and forth like this. That's the first nine chapters. It's very, very interesting to read. And as you read through all of this, we're not going to cover all of that today, but you'll see the qualities of each of these paths. You'll see the methods that they use to either save people or entrap people. And you'll see the final destinations of both of these people. The message of Proverbs guides us to walk after Madame Wisdom. Ephesians 5, 5-17 says, Therefore be careful how you walk. And look at this language. This is Proverbs language. Not as fools, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Whenever you see this coupling of wisdom and folly, wise and foolish, in the New Testament, this is Proverbs. Okay? They're drawing on the book of Proverbs for this language because they, it is wisdom and folly. That, that's what you have in the book of Proverbs. So let's have a little look at some of the, the ways that folly seduces people for people to come over onto their path. Chapter 1, verse 8 to 19. We'll pick out certain bits. Chapter 1, verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Okay, I told, I told you Proverbs is practical. This is a very simple way of just saying, <laughs> if you're being tempted, simply say no. Okay, Sounds easy. I know it's hard, but it sounds easy. The advice is easy. It says, verse 11, if they say, come with us. Okay, and this is one thing that we need to understand. You see, people on the way, on the path of folly... They offer people who are unsure identity. You find your identity in the groups that you're with. Why that's why gangs are so powerful. You, you speak to, you watch those documentaries, don't you, on gang members. It's always the family element that people want. They don't want to leave. They've got protection. They've got a group. They have identity. Come with us. Just come with us. Verse 13. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We'll fill our houses with spoil. Not only will you have identity, but you'll have good things. Spoils. Material gain. Sensual pleasure. We can offer you all those things. These are the, the ways that people are entrapped. 14, throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. Join us. That's what they're saying. Just join us. Everyone is doing it. We'll all be together. Everyone will have the same purse. It's fine. We'll all have the same money. We'll share everything. It's going to be great. Okay? This is peer pressure. Okay? In a, in a biblical sense. Don't underestimate how powerful that can be. Verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them and keep your feet from their path. Okay, wisdom chirps back up here. Just do not walk with them. Don't even go on the same path as them. When you see these enticements, these offers of various different things that we're all susceptible to, just don't walk with them. And then it goes on to say, so their ways, so the ways of everyone who gains violence, it takes away the life of its possessors. They ambush their own lives. Okay. He's actually saying these people are just ambushing their own lives. And then in, from verse 20 onwards, you see wisdom. It says, wisdom shouts in the street. Okay, and we have this kind of con con conflict that we see now. Folly tries to entice people. Wisdom stands up and says, why are you listening to these people? This is their way is death. The end of the chapter, it says, why are you following them? Verse 29, because they hated knowledge 
and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. This is, this is folly. They did not choose the fear of the Lord. Why are you going to them? You see, let's go to Proverbs 7 as well. You can see another example of this. Verse 6, again, I won't read the whole, the whole lot. I'll just... This is basically you have a, a kind of third-person description of Solomon now watching a young person, a young naive man, being tempted out in the street by Madame Folly, uh, Dame Folly. For at the window of my house, verse 6, I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense passing through the street corner near her corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight in the evening in the middle of the night and in darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. This is folly. Okay, this is the metaphorical woman, folly. But you see the problem here. By the time he meets this woman, it's already all over for this guy. Okay, the point is, he should never have been walking in the way with sinners. He should never have been out near her house and he should never have been out at this time of night. Okay, these are all things. He'd already lost the battle because he'd taken those very small steps. Okay, you remember the Greek myth, Icarus, he flew too close to the sun and his wings melted. This is how we like to play, don't we? Okay, oh, I won't go into the house of the harlot, but I'll walk the street next to her because that's not bad. No one will know. How would we know? It's just walking the street. Little steps. He committed all of them and he was ripe to meet this woman. Come in. And she says, come in. You can read the rest of the chapter. She offers all sorts of sensual delights. And in verse 25, at the end of this, he says, Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way of death, descending to the chambers of death. The results can be very, very serious. So we need wisdom in our lives. We need to discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Okay, so where do we find this wisdom? Obviously, hopefully, Book of Proverbs, but more importantly, the whole of the Word of God. Okay? Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. 1 to 6. You get this piece of advice on how to avoid folly. It says, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. Look how earnest this person is seeking. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. When your heart is crying out for that sort of knowledge and understanding, for that understanding of Christ and who he is, understanding of wisdom, then you discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. And look at verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth and knowledge come understanding. From his mouth, what comes from someone's mouth? Words, okay? The word of God, the words that come from God's mouth. What do we have in 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching correction and on. Inspired, that the word literally means God breathed. What comes out of God's mouth? Breathing, words. It's all about God's word, you see. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, it says, this is what is coming. 2 Timothy 3.15 And from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. Okay, Wisdom comes from God. The, uh, the reformer John Calvin, he said this, All that deserves to be called true wisdom consists in this one point, 
that we submit to the teaching of the word of God. That is summation. All that consists of true wisdom is that we submit to the teaching of the word of God. And you'll see this theme all throughout the book of Proverbs. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for a length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs chapter 3. Remember what we read in Proverbs chapter 7, that scene where this young naive man is being seduced to go down the way of folly. You'll always see in this book of Proverbs the antidote given in the same passage. So how does, look at the, I missed the first six verses of chapter 7. Look what they are. My son, keep my words, treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, he says, because if you go into her house, you're going to die. He says, keep my commandments and live, and the teaching is the apple of my eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and cool understanding your intimate friend, verse 5, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. This is how you avoid temptation. It's the word of God. The effect of the word of God in our lives is something we cannot do without. You see, I've gone through a, just a few things here. I'm going to read a list to you. Just a few things. We could treble this list if we wanted to. You see, the word of God sets us free in John 8:32. The word of God brings life and healing in Proverbs 4. It protects us. It brings wisdom. It causes fruitfulness in our lives. It blesses those who order their lives to follow the word of God. It's said to cleanse us and it purifies us. It helps us resist, resist temptation and it corrects error in our lives. It gives us mercy and grace. It gives us judgment, wisdom and discernment. It's a light to our path and it directs us in all our ways. It strengthens us. It transforms us into the image of Christ. It renews our minds. It comforts and consoles us. It gives us delight. Even in the midst of trouble, it gives us peace. It gives us assurance, gives us joy, gives us happiness. And ultimately, it gives us hope because the one who breathed it out is God, and he is a God of hope. You see, we need this in our lives. All those things, if you want to have a joyful Christian life, if you want to know God, if you want to live a, a Christian life, it's non-negotiable. We need wisdom. We need to be searching out this path of wisdom. Proverbs 13, 13 says this, The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. You see, not only do we fear God, we fear the commandment. It's the same word, it's the same kind of thing being said here. One's attitude to the word of God will be a true indicator of their attitude towards God. You see, if we're willing to change the word of God because we don't like it, rather than try to understand the God who gave it, then we're willing to make God in our own image. And again, as soon as we do that, the fear of the Lord and the beginning of wisdom is gone. You see, we need to stand on the authority of the word in our lives. Do we really believe it? You see, the reformers, they had a phrase, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Um, I'm using, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this, uh, this year. So there's lots of events going on in celebration of that. Most of them, unfortunately, are just people trying to get together and say, oh, well, what a shame we had the Reformation. Why can't we all just get along? Um, they don't understand the Reformation. Martin Luther when he started this reformation, we didn't start it, but when he propelled it into kind of the popular sphere by nailing his 95 theses on the cross and writing his books and discovering justification by faith, he was called 
to a council, the Diet of Worms. The Council of Worms is a city um, where he was to basically give an account of what he had been doing in front of not only the Roman Empire, but all the leaders of the church, basically the highest powers that you could assemble in one room. And they wanted him to recant his beliefs. Okay, They wanted him to conform to their beliefs, conform to the culture. And he gave this very famous speech that I, I like to quote. I like, this is one of, I don't like some of Martin Luther's speeches, but this one I do absolutely love. And he said this before them. He says, since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Okay. And with that speech, shh. The world changed. Okay, the whole of Western history was changed with the, with that speech because his conscience was captive to the word of God. You see, now if we want to put that into today's face, into you know, let's update that to our times a little bit. Uh, your government and all your politicians, you want me to answer briefly? I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of British values, so to speak. Okay, I will not be bullied by political correctness to defy my conscience by turning against the word of God. It's the same thing. It's the same thing going on here. Conform to the culture or stand on the word of God. You'll very quickly realise. You've seen the, all the hoo-ha with Tim Farron at the moment, the Liberal Democrat leader. Because he's a Christian and he has a Christian traditional stance on homosexuality, um, he's suddenly realising that all his friends are turning against him because the Liberal agenda, it doesn't. He's, he's, he's in the wrong party if he wants to have these kind of lines. And he's realizing that all of a sudden, it's not about which political party you support. It's about whether you're standing on the word of God or not, because the, the, the culture hates Christ. Okay? You can agree with them on everything, but the moment you take a stand on the word of God that goes against what they believe, path of wisdom, path of folly, bang, crash. You can't do it. He's learning that the hard way right now. We need our consciences captive to the word of God. And if we remove the word of God from our lives, we take a, a step from the path of wisdom to the path of folly. What does it say in the book of Romans? They became futile in their speculations because they're what? Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. Notice that, wise fools, wise fools. This is Proverbs here, coming through again from the book of Romans. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible, corruptible man. On and on and on it goes. We could trace these themes throughout. I want to briefly look now at how this plays out at a national level because we have an example of this from the children of Israel. Okay? They did exactly this thing from the path of wisdom to the path of folly which led to death and captivity. So let's turn to the book of Jeremiah, please. Now, the book of Jeremiah obviously is you... The children of Israel were taken captive into Babylon, okay? And this is where they are. So this is in the book of Jeremiah. You have a lot of the explanation as to why they ended up going into captivity. I'm going to quickly highlight a few things because, again, they're very relevant to us in our culture today. Chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8, the book of Jeremiah. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. 
The rulers transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal. What's he basically saying here? Those who were supposed to know the word of God did not know it because they did not seek me and they did not know me. Quite simply, that's what he's saying. The leaders who were supposed to know this, the people, they did not know it. Chapter 2, let's look at verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's this basically saying? They rejected God and they replaced it with themselves. And this is the same thing that happens all the time. You'll notice it in every... This is why the fear of the Lord was given as that foundational principle, because without that, you're left with self. Okay, and this is what it is. It's always about where does your authority come from? What are we standing upon? Okay, as soon as you reject God, you replace it with yourself. Even if you don't know that's what you're doing, that's what you end up doing practically. It's either God or man. Chapter 5, verse 4. Then I said, they are only the poor. They are foolish. Notice that word again. Why are they foolish? For they do not know the way of the Lord or the ordinance of their God. They did not know the path of wisdom that God had already revealed to them in the word of God. Look at verse 30, 31 of the same chapter. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. It's the same issue. No longer God's authority, our own authority. And the people like that because us being sinful creatures, we're probably not as... <laughs> Like I said earlier, it's more comfortable for people. When we're not confronted with a holy God, when we're confronted with sinful man, that's nothing. This is, our, this is just, just in our nature. Chapter 6, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Their ears are closed and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. You've probably all spoken to people like this. You can tell the word of God, but, but they're not listening. Okay, they're just, their ears are closed, they are not listening, and then the word of the Lord becomes a reproach to them. Okay, and this is talking about the children of Israel, who were supposed to be the people where it should never have been a reproach to them. It was, it was given to them as an act of grace. They have no delight in it. There's no love for the word of God in their hearts. That's a sign that you're on the way to the path of folly. And then it's only one small step from this to six, chapter 6, verse 19. This is the final stage. Because they have not listened to my words, so because they're not listening, it says, as for my law, they have rejected it also. You end up with a total rejection of the word of God. Okay, And with that goes the total rejection of the fear of the Lord, of the understanding of who God is, of any hope of being on the path of wisdom. And you're straight in the path of folly. Where did that lead? To Sheol, to Hades, to death and destruction. It is this is why they went into captivity because they didn't obey the word of God in this sense. Um, in the book of Jeremiah, you'll learn specifics about all of this. But they were led into captivity, into slavery, and into death. Just as wisdom warned them, this is where they would go. You see, now in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to be studying Nehemiah this next week, a spiritual renewal takes place. Okay, We see the restoration. Ezra and Nehemiah deal with um, trying to get the captives from Babylon back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city and the temple and these kind of things. And there's one scene that I love in Nehemiah chapter 8 is where Ezra and he, he's got some of the people to return and he sits them all down and they just have this huge like 12 hour long open air Bible study okay, where people are going out into the people and they're translating the word for them, they're explaining the meaning, the meaning of the word of God and people are falling on their faces and they're repenting and there's this spiritual revival there. 
Okay, it's the word of God. You see, spiritual renewal, revivals, whatever we want to call them, personal or national, they're outpourings of God's spirit, yes, but the outpouring of God's spirit will always result in a sustained focus on the word of God because this is what God has used to reveal the way of wisdom to us for personal use and for national use. However, we learn lessons from Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay? They had trouble getting people to leave. Okay, that was their effort. Not many pe- The Jews had been in Babylon for so long. They'd been in captivity. Many of them were born in captivity. It's all they knew. They were very comfortable there. Okay? They had food and shelter and clothing and houses, and they were, they were pretty well off. Jerusalem was lying in rubble. It was maybe not too appealing. The fact of leaving their comfort zone, their comfortable bubble, we all struggle with this, don't we? Leaving their comfort zone and heading to Jerusalem, following this man, Ezra and Nehemiah, probably didn't seem too appealing. They were going to have to work hard. It was dangerous. The temple was destroyed. They were going to have to rebuild their houses and cities. Spiritual renewal often requires hardship. Leaving comfort and heading to Jerusalem was going to be hard. However, when you see the results, the temple was rebuilt, the city was rebuilt, and there was a revival amongst the people. And they they turned back to the living God. You see, do we want to see spiritual renewing in the nation? You know, it's easy to say, I want to see more people saved at church, I want to see, you know, but this is not what it's talking about, you say. Spiritual renewal is the same as coming from Babylon to Jerusalem and taking that journey. It can require hard, hardship. And if we want to see it in the nation, we have to want to see it personally. So we ask that question to ourselves, do we sense the need personally for spiritual renewal? Bob Deffenbar, again from his commentary, he asks this question. He, he says, if your answer is no, if you say, no, I'm, I'm fine, thanks, I'm doing pretty well, I'm, I'm growing in my spiritual disciplines, and you know, yeah, I'm, doing, I'm doing good, don't want to shake the boat right now. He says, if that's your answer, he says, that's fine. You'll stay in Babylon. You'll have a comfortable life there. You'll probably enjoy it. It'll be very good for you. You'll have a small area of ministry amongst those around you, but ultimately you'll always be in Babylon. And he says, because of that, you'll miss what God wants to do with you personally and what he wants to do with you as part of the corporate church, and they are your two greatest callings in life. And that's the tragedy. You see, if we do want spiritual revival, we need to make sure that we're walking the path of wisdom. Okay? And this involves a number of things. Proverbs is key in that. But we need to avoid falling into the trap of looking around the world to the detriment of looking upon what we have in Christ. And this is a big problem, I see. I, I struggle with it myself. You spend so long dealing with the, the, the signs of captivity all around us in this nation. I had a whole list of things that were just from the last week. I decided not to take them out, really, because they're just so depressing. But as an example, like me and James, we did a youth conference a little while back, and James did a teaching. And a part of his teaching, he, he had all the with room 20, 20 youngsters, teenager age, and they were all had to give one word to describe the world or culture or life. I can't forget the exact part. And so, you know, they're all shouting out things. And the thing that stood out to me, and these were Christian youngsters, but not one of these young people had anything positive to say about the world. There was not one positive thing that came from the world. Okay. on the one hand, I understand, I understand because, you know, they're power-hungry, mad, lies, all these things that were coming out. I understand, you know, I do understand it. But the more I've thought about it, it bothers me slightly. Okay, because, you know, as Christians, should we not have more of a hope than other people in the world? Are we missing part of the message here? And their generation, I probably include my generation in this too, we are called the generation of entitlement. 
Okay, we've never really lived through a war, a you know, a famine, or you know, rationing. Or we've always had hot water in our taps, food in our supermarkets. We have all the TV channels we want. We have houses. We have welfare, free medical care. We have all these things that we take for granted. You see, but yet, in spite of that, there's no fulfillment in life. Okay, and this teaches a lesson to us. You see, none of these things ultimately affect the soul. Okay, they're peripheral things, and they're good things, and God says they will come with the blessed nation, but when they become primary, again, you've got to be careful which road you're on. They didn't affect the soul. They're not answering the fundamental questions of life. You see, many people can kind of be happy in one sense when they have all the peripheral questions answered. Okay, but at some point, those fundamental questions that cannot be answered apart from the fear of the Lord are going to come crashing into their lives. And we can, we can have all the goods and all the entitlements that we want, but if we don't have the fundamental questions, at some point it will come crashing down. You see, as Christians, we have security. We know that the fundamental questions in life are answered, and we have answers for them. And we get the joy of seeing many of the peripheral questions answered too. You see, there are so many voices in this world that we need to make sure that the story we're telling is not only one of judgment and coming doom, but it's one of coming glory and coming victory, the resurrection and the life. Okay? It's a whole message. We, we, uh, we split it at our peril. You see, our identity, we know. We know what it means to be human. We know where our origins are. We know our meaning. We know our destiny. We know all of these things. The word of God has revealed us to them. They're in the way of wisdom. Follow my commandments and have life. Okay. In Proverbs 3, you'll see that it says, the, the word of God is a tree of life to those who hold on to it, and happy are those who make it in their heart, have it in their heart. Okay? The pursuit of happiness is a big thing. This is, the, this is the answer for that, the fulfilling answer that will have eternal value and eternal co consequences. We need to understand that our identity in Christ is more than just saying we are saved. Okay? It means we're loved, that we are redeemed, we're blessed, we're saved, adopted, forgiven, renewed, chosen, and called, and one day we'll ultimately be victorious because we're in Christ and our lives are hid with God in Christ. Okay? We need to teach the path of wisdom where it leads as opposed to just speaking about the journey too. This is where our ultimate hope lies. We need to recapture the majesty of God that will encourage people to want to come from Babylon and take the journey to Jerusalem following under the leadership of his prophet Ezra and Nehemiah, us obviously following Jesus Christ in this day. We need to give this full message to young people but also to our own hearts. It's heavenly wisdom. What does it say in the book of 1 Corinthians? Again, Proverbs language. We do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom to which none of the rulers of this age have understood. If they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As it is written, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those that love him. This is part of our future. This is part of our destiny that we have. We are secure. What does it say in the book of Romans? In all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, we can see the things that are going on in the world, you know, but it says in Proverbs, we don't need to fear evil in that sense, because we have a destiny and a security that cannot be broken. This is the way of wisdom. And ultimately, this is the way of Christ. Okay? The New Testament teaches that Christ is the ultimate expression of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, By doing this, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In Colossians 2 it says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's this way that leads to life. All other roads lead to death. Okay? It's very popular to say that all roads lead to God. You may hear that, don't you? Different ways to the same place. <laughs> That's Dame Folly speaking. Okay? One road leads to life. It's the way of wisdom. It's the way of Christ. The others lead to death. Now the question for us from Proverbs is what road are we on? What road are we really on in our lives? And if we're on the right road, how quickly are we walking, so to speak? Do we have that desire that we see where we seek it above all and treasure it? We, our hearts are crying out for understanding, for insight, for wisdom. Are we putting it as a priority in our lives to follow after Jesus? Are we seeking wisdom? Are we seeking Christ above all else? This is the message of Proverbs. I'll end by just reading this verse again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The biggest and most relentless pursuit of our lives should be to understand Christ in all his fullness. Because in the face of Christ Jesus, we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in this world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we're just humbled by, by your word. Everything that you've revealed to us, that you've seen fit, Lord. And we pray that you would help us in our lives to follow after you. That you would just ignite in us that passion and that understanding of your word that would affect us practically. And Lord, in, in whatever way you've called us, that we would follow your calling. We pray that for our church, Lord, and we pray that for us as individuals. We pray that we would help one another in this act. That your Holy Spirit, Lord, would empower us to do this. I thank you, Lord, for this morning. I pray that you will bless our time together. In Jesus' name, for his sake. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.